You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. If you could only see the conditions under which I am producing this podcast. Normally, I do this in our basement. We've got a little studio set up. It's nothing fancy. When I say nothing fancy, I mean... It's pretty crude, actually. Uh, the walls are covered with this silver kind of space-age material that you find in homes when the basement is not finished. The floors are concrete. It's nothing fancy, but it works. It's mine, okay? It's mine. Well, we're doing some other work in the basement now, which means everything that was not nailed down has gotten pushed into the studio space. And so I'm sitting in here, and rather than the immaculate, clean production studio you're imagining... I have all kinds of stuff crammed in here. There's a TV in here that I don't know if I've ever seen before. Behind me is a bed. By bed, I mean a mattress, a box spring, uh, the slats, the whole deal. I'm crammed into this studio. I look like a college freshman who has crammed his car full and heading off to his first year of college at the University of Idaho. It's Everything's just crammed in here. So I don't have a whole lot of room to move, but I can talk. And I want to talk for a moment about yesterday. Yesterday was part eight of our series, Miracles the Jesus Way, and we talked about the healing of Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old girl at the door of death. And as Jesus heads to heal her, he stops and heals somebody else. What's going on through Jairus' mind when it seems like the Lord is moving and all of a sudden he stops? Lots to think about. This will be the last of our series of Miracles the Jesus Way. I hope you've enjoyed the series. We'd love to hear from you. Just shoot us a note, randy at thebridgekc.church. We'd love to hear who's listening and uh, if this series has been helpful to you. Stay with us. Stepping into week eight of our series on Miracles the Jesus Way, how Jesus did miracles. And if you'll understand, a lot of what we've talked about is actually not so much been the miracles, it's been people's response to the miracles. Because people respond in very different ways once the Lord starts to move. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how people really don't like waiting. Remember talking about that? How just nobody likes to wait. And there's a couple different reasons for that. Sometimes things are worth waiting for, and other times they're not. If I were to ask you to stand in line in 100-degree weather for 15 minutes, but there was ice cream at the end of that line, you might do that, okay? But if you were to stand in line for 15 or 20 minutes in 100-degree weather, and you get there, and I'm handing out hard-boiled eggs, you're like, this was not worth it. This was not, the amount of time I just gave you is not worth the egg that I got, thanks for anything. The only thing that might be worse than waiting for something that's not worth it is waiting for something, thinking you're making progress, and then realizing you're no further down the line than you were before. Worlds of fun. Okay, have you ever gone to Worlds of Fun and you get in the line for the roller coaster and it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and then it goes around the corner and you realize you've only gone a third of the way to the thing that you thought. It's like, I thought I was making progress. And I'm apparently not getting any closer than I was. Recently, I talked about my friend John who is planting a new congregation in Chattanooga. And uh, John and his wife, Charlotte, 
are also refinishing and, and rehabbing a house that's over 100 years old. And it has been a complicated ordeal. These houses are complex and they're fragile and it's been one setback after another. And recently they had their move-in date all ready to go. They were getting ready to have the trucks on standby. The movers were all ready. And the day before they were supposed to move in, the gas company called them and said, uh, we can't connect your gas. And he said, what do you mean you can't connect it? You came out and checked the line completely last week. And they said, oh, no, no, we checked our line. But when we get to your house, it's a 100-year-old fitting, and, and our line doesn't fit your fitting. And it was just so crushing to them to be so ready to move, and then suddenly they can't. Now, on a six-month rehab project, one weekend doesn't matter a whole lot. But to your heart, when you're ready for something to happen and it doesn't happen, it can be frustrating. Welcome again to, I said, week eight of this series. The passage we're going to talk about this morning is one of the unusual ones that is mirrored in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them tell this story. All three of them tell the story in a very similar way, and all three of them tell it in two parts with an interruption in the middle. Uh, Turn to Mark 5. God often does things in our lives with interruptions in the middle. The most epic stories of your life happen in episodes or even over seasons, not just in one little scene. I read something this week by Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly's the founding editor of Wired Magazine. He's a believer, and he's always just a a very bright thinker. And uh, he said, I'm actually an optimist because you just don't hear about good news because it takes too long to happen. Bad news happens quickly. And so in a 24-hour news cycle, there's always new bad news to talk about, but good news and good things often happen over time. And the hand of God in your life often spans seasons where it feels like he starts to do something, and then it stops, and then he starts it again. And I'm telling you all of that because some of you are holding on to parts of a fulfilled miracle But the final chapters are not written yet, and I want to encourage you, don't close the book yet. He's still writing. What we have here in Mark 5 is is not just a miracle delayed. We've talked about delayed miracles. It is a miracle that is interrupted. It is the story of a man who saw Jesus start to move on his behalf and then appear to get sidetracked by somebody else. Just for context, this happens right after Jesus casts the demons out of the men and into the pigs that run down the hill, and they drown, and then the townspeople say, Jesus, can you leave? So he moves on. This happens right after that. There's an idea that every time God moves, a crowd will gather. That's actually not true. In the Bible, we see times where Jesus does things, and the crowd thins. But the one who had been set free, this this demoniac, Wanted to come with Jesus. Jesus told him, no, no, go tell your friends and tell your family what the Lord has done for you and about his mercy toward you. What a great template for a testimony. Go tell what the Lord has done for you and his mercy towards you. Meanwhile, Jesus leaves town with the disciples. Mark 5, 21, starting in 24. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, 
came out and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be alive and well. Now, Jairus here is at the height of the tension because he doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond. Doesn't know how this is going to go. His little girl is dying. And so the tension is thick. And the Bible says in the next verse, and Jesus, or he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and a throng was about him. Now, Jairus was a Jew, and he was a very influential one. Some texts call him a ruler in the synagogue. Other passages call him a patron in the synagogue, or one who donated funds to build the synagogue. He was like a synagogue planter, okay? He started synagogues from nothing. There was no centralized Jewish religious authority, so all it took to form a synagogue was to decide you wanted to do that. And oftentimes, wealthy people would make great contributions and a new synagogue would start. And so the line between donor and leader is, is kind of fuzzy. He may have been either one of those. He may have been both. Exactly none of this mattered to Jairus at this point because his little girl, which we later learn is 12 years old, is at the point of death. Now, I have three 12-year-old girls, okay? There's something about little girls in that age where they're, they're taking that step. They're really not a child. They're really not a young woman. But I'm telling you, a dad would do anything for his little 12-year-old girl. And the Bible says that she, the phrase that is used there is more than just, she's more than just sick. It's as if she is at death's door. If you've ever been with someone as they have passed from this realm to the next, you understand that it's as much a process as birth is. When people pass on, we have, we have been with three of our parents as they've gone on to the next life, and it, it takes, there's a little season there where you know this is happening. You know this is about to happen. Chances are that Jairus left his daughter's bedside, and when he did, he did not know if he'd see her alive again. Can you imagine leaving your child's bedside knowing you might not see her alive again? He had that kind of understanding that the thing dearest to him was about to pass on. And in that moment when he was afraid he was going to lose her, he left her to go find Jesus. There were probably people who questioned his thinking. Jairus, it's not, it's not time for this. Don't just... Stay here. Don't, don't go do this. It always looks like the positive thing to go seek the Lord, but when you do it in the last moments of your daughter's life, there are probably people that are encouraging you to rethink this. In your time of crisis, experts will come out of the woodwork and they will never understand the amount of time that you invest to be with the Lord. That will always look like a waste of time to those who are not in the crisis. And the more dire your circumstances are, the less you, they will understand it and the more you need it. The most productive thing you can do in a time of any crisis is determine in your heart, I'm going to go find Jesus. Because your constant attention to the crisis, unless you haven't noticed, is not changing anything. How many really tough things in life have you changed by just thinking about them over and over again? Behold, I preacheth to myself. 
I, like, I've got a track record of goose egg of thinking things into a better way. Now, I've got an almost superpower of thinking things through. Like, if I had a cape, it would be related to that. I can analyze things, and I can think about them, and I can turn them over and think about it from the other angle. Six hours later, I'll say to Kelsey, you know, what maybe happened when Kelsey's like, we've talked about nine things since that. Are you still thinking about that? Move on. I can think and rethink things six different ways from Sunday, but I lack the supernatural power to change them. And so do you. So what is the effect of all of the thinking and the fixating and the sitting at the bedside? Nothing changes. Time would better be spent finding Jesus. So let's talk about Jairus. He's gone and he's asked Jesus for help. And Jesus agrees, I can help you. And now they're walking through the crowd. What is going on in Jairus' mind? Don't stop. Don't stop. Just keep, I've got Jesus moving. Don't stop. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Hope we don't hit any red lights. I hope the donkey doesn't need to stop for water. I finally have the master's attention and I am not going to stop. He is leading Jesus by the hand to his problem. He is binding and loosing everything he can think of. He is like repenting of things he didn't even do. He just wants to get Jesus to the side of his daughter's bed. And then all three records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the same thing. Jesus gets sidetracked. Can you imagine? Your daughter is dying. You go to get him from the crowd where he's healing people. You say, come with me. He's going with you. Come on. And you turn around and he, what are you doing? You, we're going to heal my daughter. And now you're, what, what is going on? You finally catch his gaze and then he breaks eye contact. It's like trying to get your talkative spouse to the car after church. Half of you laughed, okay? Because the other half are the one going, that's not funny. You know, it's like, come on, we gotta, we gotta go. We're, we're, you know, the Baptists are filling up the restaurant. We've gotta hurry. And, and they're, they're just, they, they, you just can't get them there. He can't get Jesus to the bedside. Because what happens is Jesus is going through this crowd and this woman reaches out and grabs the tassels of his garment. Daniel preached on it a few weeks ago. Those tassels that would have been on the edge of Jesus' garment were blue and gold. They represented his righteousness and justice. And she's like, if I can just get a hold of his righteousness and his justice, he'll change things. And Jesus announces, power's gone out of me. And he gets sidetracked. And everybody in the crowd is, this is fantastic. Except Jairus is going, you were moving on my behalf and you stopped to do something for her. Why does it seem like sometimes when Jesus starts to move in your situation, he suddenly stops? How many times have you agonized in worry and you thought you were about to see breakthrough, you even got some hints, Kelsey and I call them tokens, it's not the full breakthrough, but it's, it's something, and then it freezes, and he seems occupied by a completely different situation. My kids have a word for something when something suddenly doesn't work that should work. It's, it, it glitches, okay? They've got a Nintendo, and when it doesn't work, there's no explanation for it. What, is it working? No, it's, it glitches. And glitches has become shorthand for anything that should work that doesn't work in our house. Earlier this week, when it was about 104, air conditioning went out on our van. 
the van glitched. You know, that was the, the kids were like, yeah, the van's glitching. It's just not working. It's not doing what you thought it was going to do. And for a minute here to Jairus, Jesus glitches. You're not doing what, like, I'm bringing you, and suddenly, what? This is not supposed to be that way. Why does Jesus do that to Jairus? Why does he do it to us? Why does he start moving on our behalf, and then all of a sudden it seems like he's sidetracked and he's moving on somebody else's behalf? When you are saying, it was my turn. I prayed harder than they did. She just grabbed your robe. I pled with you. I sought you when I could have stayed by my daughter's dying bedside. Why did you do this? There's a couple of potential reasons, I think, why Jesus does this. Way more reasons than I'm going to give you. There's just a couple here. I think he is demonstrating compassion, in this case, to Jairus and everyone who is watching. The teacher is always teaching. In Mark 5, 35, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of this disease. I think he is teaching Jairus and the others about how compassionate that he is. Guard yourself against jealousy or frustration when he's moving on somebody else's behalf while you're still waiting. He's not ditching you, he's teaching you. Jesus' healing power in someone else's life does not diminish his healing power in your life. In recent years, one of the areas that has exploded of study is uh, what they call game theory. And game theory is used in war games and in board games and in political situations. It's, it's a way of thinking about how people interact in a contest. And there are basically two kinds of games. There is a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game means if Walesse and I are playing the game, if I'm going to gain anything, he's going to lose it. It's the idea that it's like life is a, is a pie, and if I get a big piece of pie, his pie, piece of pie gets smaller. You understand? Zero-sum game. For someone to win, somebody's got to lose. People think about it in economics that way too, as if there's only so much money and if anybody's making money, somebody must be losing money. There is another way of thinking about games, which is called a non-zero-sum game, which means we can all win. It means the pie can be made bigger. It means the economy can grow. We can all get wealthier. Jesus is not a zero-sum game. Him touching somebody else does not mean he's not going to touch you. And so he does this to build faith in Jairus on the way. Following Jesus is not a zero-sum game. Somebody else getting a blessing does not reduce the likelihood of him answering you. He's not limited to three miracles a day. It's not like he serves this lady and then goes, oh, Jairus, sorry, it's the last card I had. I got nothing else. If she lives till tomorrow, I'll save one for you. No, 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 it's unlimited. We don't know Jairus' reaction to this woman getting healed, but we can imagine the press on his emotions. What does it mean in our heart when God moves on other people and we're waiting for that move? What does that situation mean for us? It means we are all listening to the same radio station that we've all listened to our entire lives 
W-I-I-F-M. What is in it for me? Lord, I see you're moving in her life, but what does this mean for me? When you see someone else receive a blessing or healing from the Lord, let it build you up, not worry you. He's not running out. It's a demonstration of his compassion. And your ability to receive from the Lord is actually enhanced by your ability to celebrate others. He's not going to be motivated by guilt because you made him feel bad because you moved in someone else's life. He's motivated by compassion and he's motivated by your heart of joy because you saw someone else receive from him. So I think he stops and does this to teach a little bit on compassion. Another reason I think he stops and do this is to teach us patience, which he is growing in all of us. There's this crazy phenomenon in our family where the children have an inability to remember certain things and an inability to forget other things, okay? For example, Kelsey can whisper in the closet with no children around, we're going to Target. And that information will spread through the house like a wildfire. My kids have been to Disneyland. They prefer Target. It's a big deal. And no matter what happens during the day between the word being spoken and the full realization of the glory of Target, the kids want to know, does this mean we're not going to Target? You know, air conditioning doesn't work on it. Does this mean we're not going to Target? Dog got out. Does this mean we're not going to Target? Everything that happens between the word being spoken and the full realization of the glory of Target is interpreted as stopping what's about to happen. No, 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 we're still... And you can almost see Jairus going, does this mean we're not going to see my daughter? Now that you've stopped to do this, does this mean that all the promises are null and void? Does this mean what you said to me back there doesn't count anymore? Are we really going? You can almost hear Jesus say, did I tell you we weren't going? No, I said we were going. He is building patience in us as we wait between hearing the word and seeing it all happen. Finally, he allows more time for people to join into the storyline because the crowd is growing. And Jesus' heart is for this little girl and for the woman with the issue of blood and for Jairus and for the person over the hill and for the one that leaves the 99. He goes, if we delay this a little bit, when we get there, the crowd's going to be even bigger. And God will get more glory for what I am doing in your life for the delay that you have perceived. When he reaches your place of pain and he moves in power, it is for you and for all of those that are around you to see it. It may be that there is yet to be someone to join your circle to see the miracle that he wants to give you that will change their life. And your patience means they will be blessed as well. Give him the time to get the maximum glory out of what he wants to do in your life. Now, this little side healing is over, okay? He stops, the woman grabs his, his, uh, his tassels, he heals her, and uh, no one really knows how to end it. You know, it's like when you're praying in a group and it's over and you're all standing, is, is the prayer done, is the prayer not done? Not. Jairus knows how to end it, okay? He's like, no, no, come on, come on. We were moving, come on, let's keep going to the car. It's impossible to overstate the pain that Jairus is in at this point. Like, you, if you have children but haven't encountered it, I still don't think we understand. Because there's something unnatural about losing a child. You know, as an adult, 
You hope your, your parents live for a long time, but you understand the chances are you will probably at some point bury your parents. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's natural. When you get married, what do you say? Until death do us part. You understand the chances are one of you is going to pass before the other and you'll bury. But nobody ever thinks one day I'll bury my child. It's, it's unnatural. You, can't, you don't even have the, uh, a grid for it. When it happens, it completely turns people's lives upside down. It's not supposed to happen. The loss of a child is like having your future torn from you. In the Old Testament, we read about Job. And Job's a remarkable character. I love the book of Job. He's wealthy, he's influential, and he is faithful. In the early verses of Job, it talks about Job throwing parties for his children and then getting up early the next morning and offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. He write, it's in the early verses of Job, he, he says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So he offers sacrifices for what he knows his kids did and what he even knows his kids didn't do. It's like, Lord, you saw it all. And I offer sacrifices. He loves his kids that much. Within a couple of verses, all of his children are wiped out. Because the Lord allows the enemy to hit, touch his life and the enemy knows, I'm going to start with the thing that will cause the most pain. And Job faced what Jairus is facing, the loss of that that they had brought forth onto the earth. The loss of the thing that would not exist if it were not for them. Some of you dreamed of opening a business. A lot of people do. The idea that you know, maybe their schedule could be theirs, and of course that goes away very quickly when they own their own business. They realize that their schedule is everybody's, but they've owned something, and they see it as a pathway into the future, and they are, in a way, writing their own future, but sometimes those businesses don't make it. Statistically, 20% of small businesses fail in the first year, another 30% go on the second year, and those owners never see the fruit of their labor and the thing they brought into existence dies. It's painful. It's not like losing a child, but it's hard to see something that you brought into the world leave the world prematurely. Maybe you had an idea for a ministry opportunity. Oh, we could do this and we could do this. And you start to do it. It doesn't go the way you thought. You ever had one of those, Rachel? It's a good idea too. Had a great idea and it just didn't pan out the way I thought. And you got to put it in the ground. And it's hard because it's unnatural to see something that you have given birth to no longer exist. This is where Jairus is to a factor of 10. It's not like losing his ministry. It's not like losing his business. It's a hundred times worse than that. And in his unimaginable pain, you know what his friends tell him? Don't trouble the teacher. Your, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher. Where did we get the idea that we could trouble the teacher? That phrase is actually not unique to this story. In Luke 7, they use a very similar phrase. A Roman centurion comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant. Now, it's a very highly unusual request for a miracle because the Roman centurion is technically an oppressor, right? He's one that is oppressing all of the Jews, but this guy's a mixed bag. The people around him tell Jesus he's actually a good man. He loves Israel. He built a synagogue for us. Just a little side note, unrelated to the scripture. People are more complicated than you think they are. 
I know we would like to put them in all good and all bad. They're not, and neither are you. Okay? It's one of the reasons we're so stinking polarized in this country is we think that our guy is perfect and the other guy is evil incarnate, and of course we're on the perfect side. People are complicated. And this centurion is an oppressor. He's holding the the Jewish people captive in a sense, and he's building synagogues, and the Jews go, he's kind of a good guy. He's not all good, but he's not all bad. In Luke 7, 6, it says Jesus went with him to heal his child. When he got there, the centurion has second thoughts. It's not really clear why, but he says, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourselves. Don't, I, I don't want to bother you. I'm not worthy to bother you, have you come under my roof. And Jesus heals his servant from right there. Let me tell you something. We can be troublesome. We can be irrational. I told Kelsey the other day, you know, just so you know, I'm a little hard to be around right now. She agreed. I kind of hoped she would have argued, but no, it was true. We can be troublesome. We can be a hot mess, but we do not have the capacity to trouble the teacher. Okay? At no point did Jesus go, yeah, I'm not messing with that. And they tell Jairus, don't trouble the teacher. You're going to bother him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I love his heart. Remember, if you need a miracle, appeal to his compassion. Jesus has a standing track record of being more patient and more kind than we are to the downtrodden and the troublesome and the poor and children. You are not going to trouble him with what is burdening your heart. In fact, he is more attentive to your heart than you are to your heart. When Jesus was 30 years old, he publicly declares his intent for the rest of his life. He launched his ministry. He didn't do the things that we think you need to do now to have a following. He didn't have a website. He didn't go on a book tour. He walks into the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah, Luke 4, 18 and 19, and this is what Jesus says. This is who I came for. These are the people that are worried about troubling the teacher. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said, you're not troubling me. I came for people like you. There's a lyric I love from uh, U2's song, City of Blinding Lights, that says they're advertising in the skies for people like us. Jesus said, I am advertising in all eternity for people like us. For the troubled, for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the sick. And you are not going to trouble him. Back to Mark. He's with Jairus now in verse five, chapter 5, 36. Overhearing what they said... So Jesus hears everything. He's like the ultimate you know, parent. You know, your kids think you don't hear everything. You hear it all. And Jesus overhears what he said. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. So interesting the contrast he sets up here. Do not fear, only believe. What is the opposite of willing? Unwilling. Okay, you're willing, you're unwilling. What is the opposite of repentant? It's unrepentant. But what does he set up as the opposite of belief? It's not unbelief, it's fear. Unbelief and belief can sometimes exist within the same human heart. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
He says, your unbelief is not your problem. You're struggling. You're believing and you're not believing and you're trying. It's your fear. It's going to sink your boat. He knew that we are often more fearful than we are doubting. And in fact, we can know the truth and still be in fear and fear can overwhelm our faith. He wants to deliver us from fear so that he can move in the miraculous in our life. I am almost done, I promise, but I want to take just a second and pray for people who are in fear. I don't know what you're afraid of. doesn't matter, okay? But you're, something about your work, something about your children, your health. But if you were honest, you're, like you've got the belief, unbelief thing. You're wrestling with that, but fear is overwhelming you. Stay where you're seated. Just, that's you. Raise your hand right now. You're in fear. Anybody else? All right. Father, right now we ask that fear would be broken off people. Lord, that our faith would overwhelm fear and fear would be gone. That as a people and as individuals, those in the bridge would have a mark of fearlessness on their life that would open the doors of faith and that you would move in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Just close up the story here real quick. There are different grieving processes in every culture, right? And they all look weird to other cultures. For instance, in our culture, when someone dies, people send flowers that ultimately die. Like, well, I'm, in other cultures, why send flowers? One of my favorite characters from our history would have been uh, Brother Gene Jackson. I don't think Brother was his first original name, but I can't imagine calling him anything else. He was the state leader of the denomination that we were involved in, and he was a classic Southern gentleman. He had this great voice that just resonated, and he was a character. And for the last 10 years of his life, he'd been given six months to live. And he told me one time, he said, Randy, there's something great about having six months to live. You can say anything you want, and nobody will stop you, because they think they're going to wait you out. But I'm in year seven. <laughs> he says, it's a great thing. I wish they'd have told me this years ago. He used to get up in front of the minister's meetings for the state, and he would say, as you know, I'm scheduled to die this year. There's a couple of things I want to do before I die. And he would push through the craziest things that he wanted to get done. And no one would say no because he's probably going to die. And he never did. He would also say, when I die, people always say, don't send flowers. Send contributions. He goes, I'm telling you, I want flowers. I want big flowers. I want lots of flowers. And I want lots of people crying. I don't even care if you mean it. Let's make a big show. He was just a character. Like, why do we send flowers to funerals? That wouldn't make sense in other cultures, I don't think. There were things about funerals in the New Testament that don't make sense to us. And one of those things is when someone would die, they would hire mourners. They would pay people to come. William Lane, who's with Westminster Theological Seminary, talks about it this way, describes it this way. He said, since even the poorest man was required by common custom to have a minimum of two flute players and one professional mourner at the event of his wife's wedding, it is probable the one who held the rank of a synagogue ruler, like Jairus, would be expected to hire a large number of professional mourners. You could actually make a living this way in the New Testament as a professional mourner going from place to place. Not the most sincere group of people, okay? Because they were crying for somebody else the day before. 
but they're there. And Mark 5, 37 says, He allowed no one to follow him in except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw the commotion, saw all of the hired mourners, weeping and wailing loudly, because, I mean, you're getting paid good money. You might as well put on a good show. And when he entered, they said, why? They, he said to them, why are you making a loud commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. The child is sleeping. And these mourners who were weeping and wailing laughed at him. Just, you know, stick a pin in the wailing and we will laugh at you. Some translations say they ridiculed him by continuing to mourn. The Bible says that in verse 40, he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Sometimes you need a break from people who are not with you in faith for something. And those are often rational people. There are times you need to look at the rational people in your life and say, I need the faithful people. Can you move on? Because your rationality, and by the way, you're being paid to cry at a funeral, but your rationality is actually stifling what the Lord is about ready to do here. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kuma, which means little girl. It's the tenderness of the Lord there. Little girl. I say to you, arise. And immediately the, Lord, the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome by amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them, give her something to eat. Just the tenderness of the Lord there. I want to ask if just Rachel would come back and, and jump on a guitar for a second. It strikes me the tenderness of the Lord in this miracle. Little girl. Arise and walk. Hey, hey, get her something to eat. She's hungry. I think in addition to be wanting to remain hidden for a season here, Jesus was trying to save Jairus' family the difficulty of being in the public eye. He was saying in a very unique way, I did this just for you. I didn't even do this for the publicity. There's a mob of people out there, and I just did this for you. It is the heartbeat of Jesus this morning he wants to do something just for you. As I was praying through this yesterday, I just heard the voice of the Lord. Say, little girl, little boy, little church. I have something I want to do for you. And, it's, and it may be just for you, and it may be a little for a while. And it may be not be super public for a while. But it's life to you. Some of you have felt like trouble to the teacher because you've continued to go back and to go back and to go back as it feels like he's been sidetracked and he's met other people's needs. Let me tell you this morning, you are not troubling the Lord. Wait on him. Wait on him. Stand with me for a moment. I want to go back into worship just for a second. And let's just wait on him this morning for a minute. Lord, we come to you and we say, remember that thing? Lord, you remember our hearts? Remember those words you spoke to us when you said, yes, I'll answer that prayer. We're still here. We're guarding our hearts, Lord. We don't want to become bitter towards those that are receiving. And we don't want to give up on your promises. So as we worship, Father... 
Would you remind us of what you said you would do? We ask for hope to fall like rain on dry grass this morning. Some of you have been waiting for a long time. As we just begin to worship, begin to lift your hands. Make yourself a receptacle this morning. come to you and we remind you of your promises and we remind ourselves of your promises. And we say, God, fear be gone. You are still coming. You are not distracted or delayed.